It's the tip of the spear in the epic battle to defend the United States of America. The National Security Hour exposes the wolves in sheep's clothing and their nefarious plots to undermine and destroy U.S. national security. Welcome to the National Security Hour on the American Outlaw Talk Radio Network on iHeartRadio. The voice of freedom where you will listen and hear from multi and intelligence experts on the varying issues that are affecting our national security and the outlaw truth. America Outlaw Talk Radio plays on the iHeartRadio network. You can also listen on our media player from any web browser anywhere in the world. We have the best in the class apps available on Apple, Android, and Alexa, where we stream 24-7. And now you can also hear them on the podcast on the same apps. I am your host, Lieutenant Colonel Sargis Singiri, U.S. Army Retired, the uh, uh, CEO for the Near East Center for Strategic Engagement, and also the host of New Paradigms with Sargis Singiri. My guest today is a returning guest that has been here with us on multiple occasions. Uh, his name is Alfred Johnson. He is a senior advisory board member, serving as a director of research for Southeast Asia and Japan for NECSC. Alfred uh, also served in the United States Army and uh, as an explosive ordnance disposal technician and officer uh, with uh, two deployments to the CENTCOM area of operation, including the CENTCOM Theater EOD, Contingency Force Commander uh, in 2010, responsible for both uh, force protections of U.S. DOD assets and also engagement with host nation EOD, counter-IED, CIED, and also other terrorist network response organizations. Al, it's good to have you back here again. Well, it's good to be back in the show, so appreciate you inviting me back. I know that, uh, first of all, I have to say happy Hanukkah, uh, especially with Hanukkah coming up. And I know we're just uh, on the verge of the uh, December 7th anniversary again. And I know we had you here today to discuss specifically as to lessons learned from prior to Pearl Harbor taking place and how that's going to possibly affect uh, uh, maybe those lessons learned uh, U.S. preparation for a future global war that the U.S. seems to be uh, creeping towards. Yeah, exactly. So what we're looking at is, you know, we're, we're one day away from, you know, a couple of religious observances. One, of course, is, is Hanukkah, which is a has turned into religious observance. But initially, it was just a historical event uh, where we fought against, uh, you know, the, the, the Assyrian Greeks and, you know, managed to kind of maintain some cohesion within our country. Uh, but we have another religious observance tomorrow, uh, and that is has <laughs> become a religious observance, and, and that's the remembrance of Pearl Harbor. And so what we're talking about now is, are the lessons that we remember uh, in this kind of observance of Pearl Harbor, is it helpful or not in being able to uh, you know, assess the lessons learned and apply them toward future security and defense goals? Uh, and so toward that, you know, we need to ask that question, you know, what are the lessons learned that we need to know for today? Um, so I, I'm going to give a little bit of a warning out uh, to the audience. This isn't a, um, you know, patriotic flag waving, uh, but at the same time, it's not conspiracy theory. We're not going to talk about, you know, what telegram went when or, you know, at what point was was this message received or what could have been known before Pearl Harbor? Really, what we're focusing on is how did we prepare for what happened on December 8th uh, and what was all the buildup uh, that allowed us to be able to successfully 
conduct the war to a successful conclusion because we ended up, we did win that war. Um, but how did we do that? Was it something that happened magically on December 8th or uh, was it a long buildup and some really good dedication by defense personnel and, and governmental personnel prior to December 7th that was key in that success and what happened on December 8th and then comparing and contrasting that to today. Um, so the warning is that this isn't, this isn't going to be, you know, patriotic flag waving. There are some big surprises in here because we do use an evidence-based approach in how we do it. So quick note on methodology. What we've done is this, it's, it's about a two-year project um, that we looked at both with the uh, historical DA, the historical detective agency, and also the NECSE um, for how, you know, what are those actual road to war? You know, what was that long road and what was the military and intelligence community doing prior to December 7th that either helped it or didn't uh, starting on December 8th? So we have an evidence-based approach wherever the evidence leads, warts and all, that's where we're going to go with this. And that's what you're going to hear today. Uh, And that's kind of contrasted to what you may hear in in what I call mythories or uh, academic-based approaches, depending, you know, which way you look at it. And that's where you have a thesis or you have kind of a narrative that you want to support with the evidence. Uh, so in this one, you're going to see the, the good, bad, and the ugly in all things. And the reason it's so important, as I said, this is a remembrance day. Tomorrow is, is Hanukkah. You're coming up on, on Christmas. I think we're already in the Advent season for our Catholic friends. Um, and Pearl Harbor, December 7th, has in America become almost religious in observance. And, you know, kind of a, a, a bellwether of this, so to speak, is, is Rob Satino. He writes over at the kind of the intro at the National World War II Museum website. Uh, in And the, the museum is down there in New Orleans. It's a big museum, a lot of World War II uh, information down there. Um, but he writes that no moment in the history of the United States cast a longer shadow than Pearl Harbor. Remembering it has become a national imperative, a patriotic duty for the American people, and reminding him of of us of that duty has become a ritual of media and political discourse repeated so often and in so many ways it's become part of the routine of our communal life. So that's very good if you want to create uh, a national story, a, his- a history that coheses the nation. It causes cohesion. It gives us kind of a foundational story that you know brings the nation together and kind of advises where we go and, and where we go from here. Um, but again, the problem is if you're remembering is wrong, the results are going to be wrong as well. So if we have this image that we were kind of sucker punched on December 7th and magically on December 8th, we were able to mobilize the nation through righteous indignation and a force of will to win not only against Japan, but against Germany and the rest of the Axis, um, that's very dangerous because uh, as we've seen, a lot of national security leaders today and defense leaders believe that. And they think there is something inherent within the United States that no matter what happens, if, for example, China and Russia attack us, uh, we'll magically be able to mobilize the next day. Don't worry, we have this capacity. We have this ability to turn it around on a dime. uh, And that's very dangerous. And so that's what we're talking about. And so what are some of these myths that a lot of people, including some leadership today that make some critical decisions, what do they look at as far as the conventional narrative of Pearl Harbor? Well, number one that you'll hear a lot is that America retreated into isolationism after World War I. So after World War I was over, America failed to join the League of Nations. They retreated. Uh, and as a result, the U.S. military was unprepared for World War II. Um, military leaders had their head in the sand. You'll see that they were naive. They were peacetime army, uh, peacetime Navy. Uh, and therefore, because we were we were atrophied, we were unprepared, um, some people use the word surprise, uh, sleeping. You'll hear that a lot. America was sleeping when Pearl Harbor hit. Uh, suddenly, we were surprise attacked at Pearl Harbor. Uh, and then on December 8th, we mobilized. Uh, sometimes you'll hear a variation of this, that we knew that there was going to be an attack in Southeast Asia by the Japanese, but we didn't imagine it could be at Pearl Harbor. Um, and then you'll hear a lot that you know the U.S. began perhaps in 1937 to make some moves against Japan, Japan but the intrinsic uh, entrenchment of both the 
uh, isolationist group and the pacifist group within America, the neutrality movement, uh, didn't allow full mobilization and full preparedness by the time 1941 hit. Um, and unfortunately, none of that is really true. Um, the reality is that America actually did continue foreign engagement and military uh, preparedness after World War One. Now, it wasn't the budgets that all the admirals and the generals wanted, but it was still at all years since 1919, 1920 was higher than it was in 1914 and 15. So the budgets after World War One every single year were higher than they were before World War One. Now you're never going to get a military budget in peacetime, um, so you know it's not going to be as high as World War One when America went into it, 1917, 18, and 19. Um, but it is it is higher than it was before the war. So it's not true that we retreated into isolationism, so to speak. We were also very engaged, even though we had not joined the League of Nations, the United States was actually very engaged in international political discourse. Uh, we were an observer status for the League of Nations. We were also engaged in uh, kind of the dollar diplomacy uh, in a big way. So we were actually shaping the economies of Germany. We were restructuring the loans, the post-war loans of Germany, and we were kind of the lead on that and then shaping the German economy, essentially. That's a power we didn't have before World War I. So we were very involved in those things. For the League of Nations, even though we were an observer status, we were taking the lead either through the United States government uh, officially or unofficially through non-governmental organizations uh, with such programs the League of Nations had, such as the anti-malarial program, which you know, combated infectious diseases and set up international treaties in Southeast Asia. It uh, was involved in the anti-white slavery trade. It was involved in the anti-opium, uh, which stopped drug, you know, attempted to reduce the drug trade globally. So the United States was very involved in these international uh, ideals, very involved also in the Kellogg-Brien Pact. Uh, many nations such as Siam and others would look to the United States and the League of Nations and say, is the United States going to get behind this initiative? And then they would influence how they voted for that in the League of Nations. So the U.S. was still, to some degrees, a world leader interwar period. Now, it wasn't as much as, as people that wanted the U.S. to have a, a supreme leading role like we have in the in the Cold War era. Um, however, it was very robust and it was definitely not um, isolationist uh, as much as people think. Um, the other part was that the U.S. military, as you'll see, was actually very prepared for World War II. Again, they don't get all the budgets they wanted, but it was a larger budget than before World War I. And it was also that they focused on the budgets they had on a very robust training, uh, an education, a equipping and a planning phase, an intelligence phase that was actually very good. Every year they didn't waste time and they didn't waste money. And that was a very energetic military. And I'll be honest with you, that's a little bit of kind of my personal drive, you know, behind this project is that that interwar military gets short shrift in a lot of histories, that they were naive, they had their head in the sand, they were sleeping. And that's just not true. There were some excellent, excellent uh, officers at all levels that worked very hard and it paid off in World War II. What they planned before World War II, what they trained on very hard before World War II uh, came to fruition and it went remarkably pretty close to the plan, which as you know, no plan survives first contact. <laughs> you know, Every plan that we've ever made when actually execution comes, it, it doesn't tend to look like what it does. So it's remarkable that this huge operational plan, this global operational plan that it eventually evolved into matched almost what they did pre-war. And that is remarkable. And so I think to honor the soldiers and the sailors and the airmen uh, in the interwar period, we need to have an honest look at it. And then also to protect the soldiers, sailors, airmen, Marine and, and Space Force personnel now in the future wars, we need to honestly look at what happened interwar so they can take those lessons learned. So we, we have a duty both to the, the soldiers of the past and the soldiers of the future, the military of the past, military of the future to get this right. Um, and so that's why, that's why we really focus on this project. Second part was 
that you know this Pearl Harbor was surprise attacked, or we didn't know that Pearl Harbor was was with you know a Japanese target. Uh, that's untrue. Pearl Harbor was a viable target, and we we focused on that as early as the 1920s. Uh, and we actually trained, as you'll see here later, we trained on the surprise attack air attacks on Pearl Harbor multiple times during our training exercises. So we actually knew the capability was there. We trained on that enemy capability, their, their most probable course of action. Uh, and then the U.S. adversarial, it didn't start in 1937. It actually started in 1907. And uh, to some groups in the United States, they were actually focused on Japan as early as 1895. So having said that, yeah, and these aren't just our opinions, there are other people that do really good deep dives into what happened before the war, before December 7th, such as Ronald Spector, who wrote, you know, Eagle Against the Sun. And he, you know, he says right there in, in his opening that few wars in American history have been so long anticipated and so long planned for. Um, and again, if you go over to the, uh, there's a video of this, you can actually see the slides that the people will notice that after, yeah, after you have to go to Rumble, but after this, um, if you go to if you go to the sites, you'll see that the budgets between the wars, um, again, never dipped down below the 1916 levels. In fact, after the war, uh, Japan had been our ally in World War One, and yet immediately after the war, from 1919 to about 1922, we had an arms race with Japan. We were trying to build up kind of the super weapons of the day. These are these are they called them dreadnoughts, but they're battleships. And we actually had an arms race, and then there was an arms reduction treaty, the Washington Treaty, which limited that, so it kind of put a cap on it and allowed us to take those dollars and reinvest it back in the into the civilian economy, can I grow the economy up a little bit more? But that kind of stopped the arms race was an international treaty that the U.S. was promoting. So we were, again, we were very involved in kind of these international arms agreements as well. We didn't retreat in isolationism and just keep this arms race going with Japan. So the long road to, to Pearl Harbor actually started in a way. The preparation for it began in 1906. And that was when then President Teddy Roosevelt looked at his war department. And he said, hey, guys, do we have a plan to go to war with Japan? And they responded, no, sir, we don't, but we'll get back to you in a year. And a year later, 1907, they had fully developed uh, the beginning of War Plan Orange. Now, some people will say that War Plan Orange was just a plan that we had so many plans. You know, we had plans against, uh, you know, Canada. We had plans against Mexico. We had plans against everybody, even England. Uh, and that is true to an extent. Um, but no plan was as fully developed and trained on and maintained as War Plan Orange. War Plan Orange was the war plan that the United States interwar military focused on. And... It, had, it, was, it ended up being aggregated hundreds of thousands of pages. And it wasn't just one plan in a desk somewhere up in Washington, D.C. or Virginia. This was, a this was a massive plan that the Army had its version. The Navy had its version. There was a joint version. There were versions in Hawaii with the 14th Naval Command. The Hawaii military defense had their own command. Uh, California, depending on your defense regions, their defense areas had their, their version of the War Plan Orange. Panama had its War Plan Orange. Everyone that was affected by this had their version of War Plan Orange. And then it was updated continuously based on changes in either capability that the U.S. had, that Japan had, or geopolitical needs, or things that they found during training that wasn't viable. And the, the history of this War Plan Orange is actually fascinating. And this is some of the, the great work by all levels in the military, we'll see later, that were engaged in uh, working the plan, putting the intelligence information in there, putting it in the plan, and then testing it. And that began in 1907. By 1911, they already had estimates of the situation that were remarkably prescient. So, for example, the Army War College in 1911, in their assessment of the situation, knew at some point or estimated that Japan would have to take Manchuria, Manchukuo. And so they began that work in there. That happened almost 
see, 1911, they put that in there. Japan didn't grab Manchukuo until 1931. So 20 years ahead of time, they could sense the geopolitical shift. So they knew what the pressures were, the geopolitical pressures that allowed them to be able to work that into the assessments. And that's one of the reasons why the plan was so good is because they did accurate intelligence assessments and then were able at all levels to put it in the plan and then test it and validate it. So really good work against that. Also during the same time, 1907, 1908, was our first war scare against Japan. We actually had uh, our first war scare against Japan where everyone from newspapers to fiction writers to politicians were writing about, we're going to go to war with Japan and our coast is vulnerable because we didn't have a large standing army or navy at this time. And they were they were saying that we need a large standing professional army. We can't rely on militias and we need a professional navy that's not just a coastal defense navy, but a, a really strong blue water navy that can take the fight over to the Japanese, oddly in line with War Plan Orange. No, I um, as you um, as you can see, um, Al has laid out um, really how we prepared. We began our preparation going back decades prior to Pearl Harbor taking place because uh, our plan is really new. That it is very much possible given the current events and how the Jewish uh, political sphere is developing that there is going to be a fight. And even when we didn't have some of the capabilities that we developed after World War II or even uh, we didn't have them before World War One, that were developed after World War One, really came into play as far as setting the stage for War Plan Orange being very detailed and covering all the aspects of what we today call political military requirements uh, when it came to really our approach to Japan and what possibly could happen if Japan decided to expand its footprint to where it was today, or, or at that time, uh, I should say. And um, uh, one thing we'll try to do, we have uh, put together, I know Al, you had worked extensively to put some slide decks together that we do have on the NEC site, and we're going to try to get those up on the National uh, Security Hour site to make sure that people can reference them and go back and re-listen to the uh, podcast and take a look at what are the issues that are very important, especially when we're talking about a possible global war that U.S. is uh, getting closer to. With that said, we're going to take a little bit of a break, come back for the uh, second segment of our discussion. I just want to remind all our audiences out there that all my shows go to podcasts typically one or two days after the broadcast is heard on talk radio. You can also hear them on Spotify, Stitcher, Pandora, and iHeart Podcasts, and many more. Be sure you subscribe and rate the show on Apple Podcasts for me. With that said, we'll come back for the second segment on looking at the road to Pearl Harbor and the lessons learned for today. Millions of Americans are needlessly suffering from the long-haul effects of the toxic spike protein. Dr. Peter McCullough and his team at the Wellness Company designed their spike support formula to counteract harmful spike protein from COVID-19 and vaccines so you can feel your best. Go to OutloudCare.com today and use code OUTLOUD for 25% off your first order. I'm so confused. I don't know what to do. I'm afraid of going to the hospital. My doctor tells me nutrition doesn't work. Trust is earned. We are the Energetic Health Institute, and we want to earn your trust. Natural medicine, holistic nutrition, detoxification, fasting, cellular healing, and so much more. Remember, the best way to be free is to be healthy. So stop being a patient and start being a student at energetichealthinstitute.org. The Natural Colon Cleanse. It's the ultimate digestive tune-up with oxy powder 
It's crafted to alleviate the discomfort of gas, bloating, and occasional constipation. There's a reason why Oxy Powder is our number one seller. It worked. Go to americaoutloud.shop and get 15% off using the code OUTLOUD. Global healing, giving you the power to take control of your health naturally. Welcome back to the uh, National Security Hour on American Outlaw Talk Radio Network on iHeartRadio. Again, I am your host, Lieutenant Colonel Sargasson Gear, U.S. Army retired and CEO of the Near East Center for Strategic Engagement. And uh, my uh, guest again, a returning guest, is Alfred Johnson, who is a senior advisory board member serving as a director of research for Southeast Asia and Japan for the Near East Center for St- Strategic Engagement. I do want to remind our audiences to uh, be sure to make AmericaOutloud.com your daily stop for the latest news and happenings. We all must do our part and share the stories, the articles, the videos, so that we can help secure America's future. Uh, our discussion uh, has been on the road to Pearl Harbor, where actually decades prior is when U.S. thinkers and strategic planners and also the Department of Defense working for with um, the civilian um, companies started really kind of looking at the possibility of war against Japan and preparing us to get there. And I know, as you said, uh, Al, in your opening discussion, that most people believe that, you know, we were asleep at the uh, wheel and then suddenly on the uh, 8th of December, we all uh, woke up and uh, mustered Americans' capability to attack the enemies. We know that that's not even a possibility. Look, even just getting out of bed this morning, just for me to be able to get some coffee, I have to get up. I have to turn on the lights that have to be tied to a power plant somewhere. I have to walk down the stairs. I had to be built by some carpenter in my house to be able to get to the coffee machine that was built and shipped from overseas for me to be able to put water in there that have to come through pipes in order to be able to turn it on just to have the coffee on hand to be able to brew one cup of coffee. For So for folks that uh, try to say that the United States can just tomorrow suddenly get up and uh, have a fight against the Chinese Communist Party without taking any uh, initial steps to have the infrastructure set up. It's just not true. And I think that's a point we're trying to get to is looking at the interwar military capabilities that we had and the army that usually doesn't get the credit between World War One and World War Two, And it was really those guys and gals that set the stage for World War Two generation to be able to be successful and be able to win in war when it came down to finally facing Japan as a near peer adversary, possibly at that time. Uh, so with that said, is there anything I'm missing on this one? Al? No, not at all. You actually nailed it. Um, and what people have to realize is that in 1907, 1906, 1907, when we assessed Japan as our next adversary, so we looked at it and we said, we need a war plan against it. And we, we focused, laser focused in on, began to laser focus on Japan as the, as the adversary that we would have to go to war with. The economy of Japan was one-tenth the United States. The Japan, Japan economy, their civilian economy, not, not even their war economy, depended upon them selling exports mostly to the United States and then using dollars or British pounds to then go and buy the materials that they could use to feed their factories. So they were extremely dependent upon the United States for their economy. That situation and their economy was about one tenth of the United States. And so think about that. In World War II and December 7th, we were we were going to war with a 
country that was absolutely dependent upon trade with the United States and the United States dollars for its economy. And they were one tenth our size. And yet we planned that war since 1907. We trained on that war since 1923, every single year. Now transpose that to today, where we have almost reversed that situation with China. We are dependent upon China for our material. We're dependent upon China for a lot of the the, the financial <laughs> dealings that we we have. The profits of companies are tied into China. We have reversed it. We become dependent on China, much like Japan was dependent on America. That's not a healthy relationship. That's not a good relationship to be able to, um, you know, stand your ground in international politics and be able to go to war. Uh, we've put ourselves in the position that Japan was in in 1941. That's that's a mistake in my view, industrial and, and financially. So when we look at these lessons learned and this long road that we needed to train and prepare for, for Pearl Harbor, looking even just at that perspective today, what is the initial starting position with China? And we're more like Japan than we are like America right now. So if December 7th hits, we're going to be hurt economically. One of the things that you, you had talked earlier um, to Jason Ho and, and uh, Moe Fukada about the vulnerability of the, of the United States to TSMC, which is the, the Taiwan uh, Semiconductor Factory that a lot of the United States security and defense uh, silicon chips are manufactured or even forged in Taiwan, which is remarkably close to China. In a war with China, that's gone. So it's almost like oil for, for Japan, silicon chips are that to us today. How are we going to be able to replenish, repair, replace, and make new uh, a lot of the defense technology that we need, which is wholly dependent upon these these integrated circuit chips and when China has all the cards. So that's something we need to consider. And, and how are we even positioning before the war begins, much less, okay, we can suddenly mobilize. It takes decades in some cases to get industry up and running, to get the infrastructure, to get the relationships, to get the supply lines, to test it. All of these things took decades and to do it overnight is impossible. So that's another thing that we have to think about. These long lead times for innovation and infrastructure development and capability building are important. So you're absolutely right. Well, it's not just that, Al. And the one thing that I, I think people are missing is the same thing as far as the linkages between the various different companies globally. I mean, TSMC has links to the uh, CCP, Chinese Communist Party, through its um, um, lead uh, being tied through blood relations to what we call the Green Gang, which is actually the uh, group that established the uh, Chinese Communist Party. And uh, so those relations, those blood relations do exist. Uh, they're going to be tugging at uh, a lot of the uh, various different companies, uh, leaders that are here in the United States uh, when it comes to the family ties. The other piece that you can uh, really have to look at is the fact that how is technology advancing? Uh, just imagine with the Ukraine war, you know, now that we hit the second year of the war, um, we didn't have the uh, infusion of artificial intelligence on the battlefield with uh, drone capabilities. U.S. Special Forces really initially had looked at drone capability use going back to the Vietnam War, but we never developed it or really put our money towards it um, at the uh, tactical operational level until we saw what is happening on the ground in Ukraine. And now you see how that drone capability uh, infused with AI really has changed the landscape of the fight. So you really need guys right now that are looking at a possible future war with uh, China, not looking at uh, you know simple technologies that are going to advance that war to include hypersonic missiles. You really are out there if you're a uh, special operational command uh, developer and you're looking at, okay, who's in their garage building a possible 
uh, teleporter uh, that, uh, you know, we need to make sure we get our hands on before the Chinese Communist Party war begins or a war against the Chinese Communist Party in China, uh, because that's going to be a technology, a leap in technology that's going to be very important for us, um, possibly two years within, the, within an engagement. And I don't know if a war against China uh, would uh, have United States in a positive if we're still continuing a war with the Chinese Communist Party two years down the line. Uh, but if you can, maybe to kind of flush that out a little bit for me, if you could take a look at and tell me about some of the technologies that came to fruition on the battlefield in World War II that helped us win, that actually shortened the war uh, duration, given the fact that they had already started working on those prior to even war starting with Japan. Much appreciated. Oh, absolutely right. And as you mentioned, you know, the, 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 the rapid uh, the rapid evolution of technology on the battlefield is something that, you know, very few can anticipate, but you have to, it's, it's your job, <laughs> right? As much as you can, you try to get ahead of the trend and develop, you know, countermeasures and, and other things that you can use to take that to your advantage. And during the interwar period, they had a very, 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 very interesting and intelligent mechanism for getting ahead of what the Japanese capability was and testing it. That's very important. So there's this kind of feedback loop that goes on. So they had war plan armed. So they planned, they had a, they had a goal. That was the first thing, right? We have an adversary. We have a clear adversary. We have a goal. We have a, a three-phased operation that we're going to move to, right? So we know we're going to get attacked, a sneak attack. They even had it in the plans for a long time. And then we're going to go marshal our forces. Phase two operations, we're going to go across the Pacific. Phase three operations is an economic blockade and then a siege, a bombardment, and a reduction of the home islands of Japan. And that's three-phased operation. Now, what equipment do we need to engage in that? in each of those phases of operation, what technology is going to keep us ahead of the Japanese advances in technology and what they have currently. And then how do we test it? So what they ended up doing in 1923, they began yearly full-scale exercises to prepare for war against Japan. These were called the fleet problems. They were multi-week, sometimes multi-month exercises, cumulative exercises. So they trained throughout the year and then they had this gigantic exercise at the end of the year, sometimes involving the army that would bring in um, and test on elements of war plan orange. And they would focus in both on the, on the tactics and the techniques, but also the equipment and was the equipment being able to allow them to, to feel the capability they had planned for. Right. And so you had things such as the carrier, uh, the carrier battle groups, the whole doctrine of carrier battle groups wasn't just, you know, kind of pie in the sky. It had to be tested in full scale exercises every year. And just one small example of how they had to do this innovation changes is uh, the Langley had, was actually during one of the war plan, uh, one of the fleet exercises, almost ran out of fuel in the Pacific because it was the high op tempo and they almost ran out of fuel. And they recognized that, okay, we're going to need in route refueling and replenishment for large capital ships. Before then, it was small and they thought it's, it's you know, we'll go ahead and get them into plant. We can plan the burn of the fuel. We can plan the burn of oil. We can plan this sort of thing and make sure they're in port to refit. They recognized that during high op tempo aviation operations, carriers were just burning up more fuel than they thought, and they needed to find a way to replenish capital ships. They planned that early in early in 1930s so that by the time the war hits, they have that capability. Uh, another great part of innovation was, again, it was the Langley and the Saratoga, and they were doing uh, fleet problems in late 1920s in Panama and doing aviation uh, invasions. They were planning sneak attacks. They were doing huge engagements, carrier versus carrier engagements, which you know, kind of uh, it defeats that whole myth about you know we were battleship bound. They were actually very innovative carrier um, admirals that were out there 
advocating for carrier operations. But what they found was if you put all your eggs in one basket, which is the, these large carriers, uh, they, if they're gone, you've lost your capability and that could throw out the whole plan. So they recognized they needed to move that capability out into the fleet. And from that came the cruisers, which had about 16, you can have about 12 to 16 uh, aircraft on a cruiser, a fast cruiser, and you're dispersing your aviation assets throughout the fleet. So they had to design and develop a cruiser to be able to do that. And then what was the link in the chain? Well, here's the link in the chain. They the general board uh, was a group of naval officers that were focused on implementing these lessons learned from the uh, fleet problems, the deficiencies. They recognized where the war plan orange had to go, the capabilities of the Japanese and what capabilities we needed to execute that plan. And then they designed and developed and budgeted forecast to be able to make new innovations to fill those gaps. So we had things like Gato class submarines that were able to go and keep ahead of the fleet. We had uh, destroyers, which were like the the Fletcher class destroyers, which are kind of the Swiss army knife of, of, of naval platforms because they could do air defense, anti-submarine warfare, shore bombardment. Uh, you know, they could do picket duty around uh, any aircraft picket duty around the fleet. Uh, they were, you know, scouting. Uh, they were fantastic little packages, but that was because of the lessons learned from the fleet problems that recognized that the traditional way of making a destroyer in one thing or another didn't work. You needed this multi-gap capability. Everything from cryptography to uh, radio communications, sonar, radar, fire control, you name it, was worked out through this. And then those needs were put into uh, forecasts and budgets. And then by the time World War II hit, we had been decades into working these problems for that war. Uh, and that was that was the focus they had. And the the there's actually a great book called Agents of Innovation about the general board. And even under treaty regulations, so the Washington Treaty and later London Naval Treaty had put restrictions about how much tonnage we could do. They said, okay, fine, but we still know what capability we need to be able to engage Japan. And we're going to innovate to be able to get that capability in a lighter, a lighter package that can be built uh, in greater numbers and with greater speed and less resources. And they did it. Uh, but that doesn't happen overnight. Again, that's decades. If you look at the, the design implementation of what they needed, a lot of the programs that eventually were fielded in World War II and some that only came out in 1942 and 43 had been started as early as 1929 and 1930 from needs requirements and AARs that they found in the fleet problems. So this feedback loop is very important and the Navy working and the Army working in synergy together to get this cycle of this is a requirement. Now we're going to test it. Okay, now we go back in the AR hot wash and what, what equipment do we need? Let's forecast it. And then when it finally comes in there, we can answer the question, does this piece of kit now match the capability that we have? But you can't do that without a full-scale, almost non-notionalized, all-hands-on-deck exercise. And that was the fleet problems. And those occurred every year, like I said, from 1923 to 1940. They were testing the plan with all hands on deck. 1940, a little less because they had operational needs in the Pacific, uh, or excuse me, the Atlantic. Uh, so the fleet wasn't as big in 1940, but every year it was almost all hands on deck and they trained very hard all year for it. They planned all year for it. And then they were testing the, the big stuff at the end of the year. And a lot of times they'd bring the army in. So the army air defense, they bring those guys in to, to test shore defense and things like that and how they integrate uh, aviation arms between the army and the Navy on you know, things like defensive Pearl Harbor uh, and that sort of thing. So, you're right that we need to do this ahead of time because you can't do that once the bombs start, right? Once the, once the enemy started the opening salvos, it's too late. Uh, in, a, in, a, in a modern war, it's going to take, in some cases, decades to get that up there. But you have to have a couple things as a lesson learned. You have to have a plan. What is our goal? Uh, you have to have a, a, an end state 
right? And we did have an end state, the economic blockade and eventual reduction of Japan. So we needed the fleet to get into Japanese waters. You need design innovation that's tested in full-scale realistic exercises continuously with all hands on deck. You got to stress the plant, right? Train to the plant and eventually stress your, stress your fleet, stress your system in everything that it does, including the interagency operations, inter-service operations to see where the flaws are and then come back and do it again next year. And they did it with the budgets. They didn't, you know, it wasn't the full budget, but it wasn't, you know, pre-World War One. but it's never the budget they want, but they did it within budget and they focused on training. They focused on war fighting. They focused on war planning. They didn't focus on anything else. No, oh, look, and at that time, actually, they were more stovepipe than they, we are today, you know, with uh, uh, legislation or um, uh, capabilities or uh, agencies. They're much more tied to, together system-wise, but it seems like they were actually much more ahead. So the two problems that we have, there's a little bit of a difference, and we'll talk about it on the third segment, is one, Japan was really dependent on us. The United States now is still very much dependent on China because uh, we haven't been able to wean ourselves off of them yet. We're trying to set up some of the infrastructure to do that, uh, but uh, we're not there yet. And the other piece is that... Uh, um, we had our own plan as far as what we want to see done for the benefit of the United States, which was separate from how Japan was looking at uh, the entire region and the Pacific. Unfortunately, as you and me both know, and I mentioned this multiple times, uh, you know, Wang Yi's proposal on the new power relations. And uh, at the time, Obama administration, Susan Rice talking about how to actualize it going back now decades ago as uh, a much more apt uh, to where the U.S. and the current administration, at least, is supporting uh, China's vision uh, for the relationship between the two uh, uh, nations or uh, near-peer adversaries rather than uh, the U.S., which may somewhat limit our ability to really kind of develop the uh, plans that uh, uh, or the synergy that um, uh, War Plan Orange developed prior to uh, Pearl Harbor. But we'll talk about that uh, when we come back on the uh, uh, last uh, portion of our segment. Again, uh, my guest today is Alfred Johnson. We're talking about the road to uh, Pearl Harbor and lessons learned for the U.S. when it comes to the next uh, global war that we are going to be involved in, more likely with the Chinese Communist Party. We'll come back after a break. Change in the world one person at a time. Here we take on the challenges of our generation so that we can preserve future generations. We know that if America fails, the world will fail. It is incumbent upon us to carry the torch for liberty. America Out Loud Talk Radio. It's a fight for the soul of humanity. We know you love the versatility and portability of the Genesis Fogger, but sometimes you just want to set it and forget it. Well, we heard you. Introducing the UX4 HOCL Atomizer. This stationary unit quietly protects you and is perfect for smaller spaces. With over a quarter million units sold in Japan, it's now available in the United States. Visit genesisfogger.com forward slash out loud to see the UX4 in action and receive a 15% discount on either Fogger with promo code OUTLOUD. With Genesis, you're ready for anything. 
go a day without brushing your teeth or washing your hands. What about washing your nose? I mean, your nose does filter the air you breathe, air loaded with bacteria, viruses, and irritants. Make nasal hygiene part of your routine with Clear. No messy bottles to fill, no drowning sensation. Clear is a natural drug-free saline with the added benefit of xylitol, which blocks bacterial and viral adhesion. Available in stores and online at clear.com. That is X-L-E-A-R.com. Welcome back to the uh, National Security Hour on American Outlaw uh, Radio Network on iHeartRadio. I am uh, your host, Lieutenant Colonel Sargis Singeri, the CEO for the Near East Center for Strategic Engagement. My guest today is Alfred Johnson, who is a senior advisory board member serving as a director of research for Southeast Asia and Japan for Near East Center for Strategic Engagement. Um, Al was uh, also the founder of Raymond's International Security Consultants Management in 2007, later Raymond Group International. And he developed the uh, Raymond Challenge Program for domestic and overseas applications, developed it into a large-scale single event, counter-IED exercises that evolved international, multinational counterterrorism, investigative, and also informational training exercises and programs of record, working directly with the Royal Thai uh, Police Special Operations Unit 191 and also supporting various Royal Thai multi-police and public private security organizations for over a decade, 10 years in Thailand and Southeast Asia. Al, uh, it is uh, good that we've had the opportunity to discuss the road to Pearl Harbor and how the U.S. prepared itself uh, prior to really war taking place uh, and us being able to at least, you know, with the innovations that took place because we had started training early to the possibility road to war to shorten the uh, timeline uh, as far as how long it took for us to be able to not just win against Japan, but also at the same time against Germany, emerge as a leading nation globally to include the control of the uh, waterways uh, globally till now. Uh, And uh, at the same time, though, really saving American lives because we really focus on war ahead of schedule rather than uh, trying to talk a way out of war. I did mention in our last segment that, uh, and I mentioned it before on various different uh, podcasts I've had, that uh, Wangyi proposal of new paradigms uh, really has kind of put us in a position where maybe we may not be planning um, as uh, well as we should uh, for possible to of a war against the Chinese Communist Party. Uh, but um, I want to have your take on the new power relations, how those policies and uh, possible political pressures might be working against us. And then I uh, would like to finish up on really going back and kind of uh, honing in on um, some of the better lessons learned, the critical ones when it came to uh, War Plan Orange and uh, how we might be able to apply it. Uh, now for a possible future global war that may take place against um, adversaries that might be tied to the Shanghai Corporation Organization led by China um, to include uh, North Korea and Iran. Absolutely. So what we're looking at is, is like I said earlier with the economics, there's almost a reversal between our position uh, and Japan's position vis-a-vis our position and, and the CCP's position today uh, in some respects. The other part is, is that 
you have to remember, we were planning a war against Japan since 1907. We were training the war since 1923. We began kind of naval mobilization uh, early 1930s, late 1929, 1933, 1935 in earnest. We began economic um, plan orange, so to speak, against Japan and starting in 1937, 38. Uh, and then we mobilized over a million soldiers and uh, reservists and National Guard in, in 1940 and then began large scale maneuvers to train on it. So we were doing that. Now, what was Japan doing at the time? They, they were somewhat looking at America, but they were engaged heavily in uh, the continent of Asia. So they were they were dealing in the continent of Asia and China. They began to move into Southeast Asia. They were they were occupying northern uh, the Hainan area. So northern uh, Indochina that was French when the French collapsed uh, against the Germans. So they were engaged and their focus had been actually on Russia. So they were focused in on the Soviet Union as their main adversary in the region. And they were paying attention to the United States as much. In fact, the army almost wasn't paying attention to the United States at all. So just because you're not planning to go to war with the enemy doesn't mean that the enemy's not planning to go to war against you. And so we've kind of taken that role. China is absolutely, along with her SEO allies, Russia, Iran, Venezuela, Pakistan, have been working for decades to reduce U.S. hegemony. And this is the new, new model of power relations that you're talking about. They want to shape the new world order. They want to shape the next world in that new model of power relations. And they've been working toward it. So in 1995, they began this alliance that they call the Shanghai Five, and now it's the SCO, where Russia, China, Iran begin to work together to reduce the, the effectiveness of the U.S. and reduce U.S. as a power, put it pushes back into our hemisphere. Uh, it back, actually pushes probably back into our borders now. They're getting kind of <laughs> they're getting kind of cocky. But understand that just because we're not planning it doesn't mean that other people aren't, and they are. And they have the advantages that the U.S. had in December 6, 1941. They have those advantages, right? Everybody focuses on December 7th. Oh, no, we were hitting Pearl Harbor. But we had set up so that on December 8th, we're ready to roll. And we're, we did it so well, like you said, we can work. We rolled not only against the original plan, which was the Japanese and War Plan Orange, but in 1940, we had updated that plan. Actually, we started in 1935 to update that plan for a multi-hemispheric war so that we could take Europe, we could we could be able to move into Europe, North Africa, and support the Allies. So we supported Britain in their fight, we supported the Soviet Union in their fight, and then we were able to do that on a global scale because we had planned, we had built infrastructure, we had the, the advantages industrially and economically and the cohesion to be able to do that. The problem now is we don't have any of that and we don't have even the focus. We're not even, we can't even get the United States government as a whole to say, well, here's the adversary. Where's the war plan orange against the CCP for the ultimate defeat? Even in the Cold War, we really didn't have it. We kind of tread water. And so, you know, we got lucky because of, of you know, some very good folks that were very, had good foresight and did it at economic and kind of the Cold War maneuvers that eventually brought the Russia, uh, the Soviet Union to collapse. But uh, China's still there. Right. So it wasn't a complete victory against, you know, the totalitarian dictatorships. It's still out there. The darkness is still in the world and it's still focused on defeating the light, which is the American Republic. So we have to be very cautious in how we do that. So how do we get that? Well, one of the lessons learned from the interwar period is organizational structure dictates outcome. You've said it. You know, it's, it's really important and understanding their laser focus on war fighting, their laser focus on war winning. They had they had a phase three operations, which is the economic encirclement of Japan and a siege and a reduction of the home islands. What is the end state? And as we've seen from most of our recent wars, we don't have an end state. We don't plan that phase three operations in there. And that's something we need to do. So realize that 
at all levels of the United States. So that's the first thing. You have to have a goal. You have to have an end state. What is the end state of U.S. foreign policy? And how does the military policy work its way into that and support each other? How does the economic policy support the military policy and support states policy? So that's the important part. What is the goal? What are we doing? Are we just trading water or is there an end state to this thing? The other part is, is that you have to understand that throughout all levels of the system, and I want to point this out, this is important, and folks in the military will understand this, at the Army War College level and the Navy War College level, they were engaged with a singular purpose of planning for war, and it wasn't theoretical. Their products, their intelligence products that they worked at throughout their, their time at the Army War College or the Navy War College were being used by their three sections. They were being used by the, the war planning boards, both the Navy War Plans and the Army War Plans. They were being used by the big bosses. So it was great for Army officer development because, hey, guess what? You know, here I am as a colonel, but, you know, the, the generals and the admirals are going to look at my, my work and then they can determine, hey, this guy's a great planner. Eisenhower cut his teeth in there, Wiedemeyer. A lot of the great folks that, you know, eventually became, you know, the war winners we're cutting their teeth in Army War College under actual realistic conditions. You're really doing a job here. It's not, we're not notionalizing it. It's not all academic. And I'd like to point out something. The Army Navy War Colleges were doing the spade work throughout the year for War Plan Arch. So the small things. So for example, if Hainan Island is captured by the Japanese, what what is that now change in War Plan Arch? What capabilities do they have? What field, what military can they base there? Where does this work? And now they field it up to the war planning division for the Navy, for the Army, and that sort of thing. The other thing is that they were very prescient. 1911, like I said, they already forecast Manchukuo. In 1935, shout out to the Army War College guys. Great analysis. They worked with State Department. They got the geopolitical trends. They knew in 1935 that we're going to have to go, that War Plan Orange is going to have to go to a two-theater two war. It's going to be Europe and it's going to be Asia. We're just going to have to do that. They recognized in 1936 that the Italians were going to move away from kind of the British, the, the old Entente uh, group, French, Britain. They're going to move into the German axis. They didn't do that until 1940. So Mussolini made the final decision in 1940 to break away from Britain and go to the German side. But they knew in 1936, he's going to do it. They're going to go ahead and move across into that into the aisle. And so they were very prescient in what they were doing, and they made good assessments, and then they worked that into the plan. And that work in 1935 and 36, that spade work, was later being able to implement into the rainbow plans that Wiedemeyer, Eisenhower, and others were working on that eventually was Rainbow Five, which was the final plan for the global war that the United States engaged in. And that also accounted for U.S. industrial strength. Did we have the capacity to build these weapons that we're planning on fielding? So in other words, when we forecast in 1943, we need X amount of tanks. Well, do we have the industrial capacity to be able to even do that? And then they they did deep dives into the supply lines. They did deep dives into the resources necessary to make the steel necessary to have all the, the materials that you need for it. So this kind of this totality and focus, this, as you said, the stove piping was very, very, very important. We don't have that now. And most of the advantages that they had that we had in the interwar period to be able to prosecute that war to a successful conclusion as quickly and as um, with the least amount of casualties that we had. It was a remarkable. I mean, for the scale of operations, it was it was it was remarkable in how we well we did it. And then we sustained other nations in their war fighting capability. Um, we don't have that now. And China has the initiative. They're working on their war plan arms. They're working on their, they've got their joint board. They have more of a cohesion within their system to be able to project their final phase three operations, so to speak. And that's dangerous because we don't, we don't even have a fix. We don't even have focus, uh, so to speak. Our organizational structures all over the place. Well, they are all over the place. I mean, um, if, if you think about how we established the baseline plan, 
was significant because the baseline plan really got everybody focused in the right direction and the systems. And then, uh, you know, we've had, we had to change the leadership because of a debt uh, in leadership. And we were still able to wage the war and uh, still continue and finish based on the original plan. I mean, if you take a look at today, uh, you know, as you mentioned, our military academies, uh, you know, today the United States Military Academy is really engaged in a number of initiatives that are that promote uh, the critical race theory. And actually, the U.S. Military Academy has drafted uh, a uh, uh, document on diversity inclusion plan, which they call it the Plan 2020-2025. Uh, and uh, if you look through those documents, um, it uh, shows that the West Point trains its cadets in critical race theory, which is a mandatory seminar which involves discussions on what they call, quote-unquote, white rage is administered to the West Point cadets. And then further, uh, more West Point uh, curriculum involves courses that in, uh, instruct on diversity, equity, and inclusion, where... We have uh, argued multiple times that uh, you got to be focused on your adversary who has actually uh, said that uh, this is a plan we've introduced, which the um, uh, Obama administration agreed upon based on the fact that Susan Rice stood on stage at George Washington University and talked about how to actualize what Wang Yi had proposed uh, uh, in his discussions um, prior, uh, going back to 2012, and then current uh, administration, of course, has the same characters in it. And it seems like even with the reset of what's happening in Europe, it's still moving towards that direction. Uh, so um, who knows where we're going to be? I know there's a political change coming up uh, in um, uh, maybe November of next year. Uh, but uh, um, a lot of people have said there's a possibility that a war may take place prior or just after the election, which is really going to put uh, whoever is the next administration coming in in a difficult position, uh, regardless of how the war was developing um, after Pearl Harbor. Uh, you saw that uh, change in leadership. You still continued on the path of the original plan was set uh, today. We have one executive comes in from one political party and in a day basically destroys everything that the previous executive had put on paper uh, in order to be able to really kind of focus on maybe not allowing uh, some of those Chinese that we see that are coming through the southern border uh, to come into the country and possibly even be able to squeeze our adversary, uh, you know, uh, stronger than any other previous administration. So. Who knows how this is going to work out. Al, uh, uh, it was a pleasure having you here. Uh, and, um, um, you know, I know that we've had this discussion on the sh my show, New Paradigms with Sargis and Gary, and people can see that on Rumble if they go to the NECSC site or just uh, Google search our names in the, uh, in the Rumble, and they'll be able to see the last discussion that we had. We'll try to get the slides that uh, we had proposed or had been put together um, on the uh, uh, National Security Hour also for folks to have access to. And then uh, the books that you mentioned, we'll try to get those up on the site. I want to make sure our audience know that you can find out more about my show and get uh, all the uh, latest podcasts. If you go to the menu navigation bar at American Outlo America Outloud.com under our show and schedule, 
you will be in the know. And I want to thank my guest uh, before I give him time for the closing comments, Alfred Johnson, who is also a good buddy of mine. We served together downrange. Uh, Alfred is or Al Johnson is a senior advisory board member serving as a director of research for Southeast Asia and Japan for the Near East Center for Strategic Engagement. Al, um, uh, you got a couple of minutes to close this out with your final thoughts uh, before uh, we say uh, uh, farewell for this year. Well, thank you again. Thanks for, for bringing me back here. The, the main thing I want people to remember, you know, starting tomorrow, December 7th, 1941, is that it wasn't uh, as much of a surprise as people think. America was not sleeping. America had focused on the single uh, adversary that we eventually fought since 1907. We had trained every, we had planned since 1907. We trained since 1923 and we had a focus on equipment. We had a focus on economics. We had a focus on planning and training and intelligence that was focused on that plan. And we began the development of the expansion of, of capability uh, a decade before Pearl Harbor hit so that by the time December 8th hit, everything was in the pipeline or the foundations were laid to be able to expand to a wartime that had already been planned for. It wasn't a magical event that happened on December 8th. And this kind of magical thinking about December 7th, while it might make you feel good as an American, it might make you feel good you know, patriotically to have this kind of a mythos that we can turn on a dime one day later, uh, is very dangerous as we face an adversary that is far greater than Japan ever was and has allies that combined create a threat that the United States has really never seen in its history. And so that's the real lesson that we need to take from remembrances tomorrow. Oh, much appreciated, Alan. Well said. I remember I was uh, on December 7, 2019. I was in uh, Korea because we were doing an assessment there and we knew something was coming out of uh, China. And uh, uh, now if you look at it uh, three years later, four years later, um, uh, it uh, it has completely devastated the world and has changed uh, how we approach um, future possible wars and even uh, pandemics that might be used in biological way against the United States. But that said, thank you very much, Al. Um, again, uh, happy Hanukkah to you and the family. Um, and I want to thank uh, our audiences out there for joining us on this mission. Uh, the National Security Hour is a tip of the spear in the epic battle to defend the United States of America with liberty and justice for all. I'm your host, Lieutenant Colonel Sargis Singiri. God bless, and we will see you in the future.